I definitely got to give a shout out to some dude listening in Las Vegas, tuning in through the internet. He was uh, shouting out Lopez's uh, Tom uh, Barbalet. There you go. Shout out to him. He's listening through on the internet. Welcome to the Noble Eight Podcast, State Reality. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this evening, well, I'm sorry there haven't been that many podcasts recently. Basically, it was just one of those weeks. Uh, lots of consulting, lots of additional nonsense, and to top it all off, I'm currently doing a sympathy diet. Husbands and wives of the podcast will know what a sympathy diet is. So I will try to talk as fast and as coherently as possible, because my energy will fade, no doubt, through this podcast. Special shout-out to my friend Lo Pesci in Canada, who's just released an album. That was the introduction. This podcast deals with the Doug Rushkov article from 1999. If you're looking for a technical podcast, it's probably better that you listen to one of the previous podcasts, or one of the future podcasts run this podcast, because it is a quiet, reflective discussion on my part with regards to something that doesn't have a lot of technical merit. It's purely a discussion about a certain history of the Noble 8 development and how it fitted into the kind of broader picture. A disclosure I've known through communication, Doug Rushkov, since 1994, I emailed him on his book Siberia, basically quite a critical email, saying that I thought he could have invested his money in a plane ticket and flown to one of the many technical epicenters at the time, other than the cliché of the Bay Area and all the you know, previous narrative with regards to the history of computing that you've heard through this podcast. My friendship with Doug continued to grow over email, and when I launched Noble Ape in 1996... I sent him an email musing about whether or not Noble Ape would get the kind of contributions that I was looking for. Obviously, the background of Noble Ape in a launch development spectrum related to the idea of getting a lot of different people interested and getting people thinking and communicating and kind of a think tank rather than what Noble Ape has become in the longer term, which is just an obsessive development, for want of a better cliché. My communication with Doug through the initial phase of Noble Ape related, I think, to really mundane things. He came to Australia once and I wanted to get him down to the shed so we could hang out and chat. That never eventuated. But finally I was able to meet Doug in New York in 1999. The background of this trip was I was working with a collective in Canberra, Australia, and I was basically managing a small team of engineers. I say basically because my job title was quite divergent, but I was receiving a, a sponsorship stipend from managing a group of engineers who were all kind of eclectic failures in some regard. I was the youngest person by about 20 years, I think. Maybe, no, that's probably about 16 years, I think. And the other people who were part of this team were all kind of oddball types that Australia seemed to protect in some regard, but also make even more isolated and more exaggerated in their oddballness. One of these characters was a fellow who made 3D video, and actually in one of his hobbies was making three-dimensional porn out of this 3D stereoscopic video, 
which I actually found was quite disturbing. We would do work with the Institute of Sport in Australia, and that involved filming 16-year-olds doing their various swimming and rowing, uh, and this fellow would film them in 3D and get his own kind of perverse pleasure out of it, which I found a little distressing. He also was taking a lot of money and forging receipts and doing a wide variety of things that were just genuinely dodgy. And I started to scratch the surface when he started claiming that receipts of things that I had purchased were actually things that he had purchased and claiming the money up front. From that, it was established that it was easier to send me away from this environment. You need to appreciate that there were defence contractors and government contractors involved in this collective both in terms of initial input and people putting in money and technical input. And I originally planned probably a two weeks of travel, going to SIGGRAPH 99 and seeing a couple of academic installations in the US. And this whole trip turned into three and a half months of travel. I started in SIGGRAPH, SIGGRAPH 99, then went to University of Houston via Dallas, all over the place, basically. But I ended up in New York, and New York was the kind of tipping point of the trip, because after New York, I went on to Europe. I think I'd spent two months in the US and then a month in Europe. So New York was really the tipping point because I was leaving the US, and I'd seen, I think, probably 10 to maybe 12 to maybe 15 cities. I don't want to do the math on the podcast. So New York was, you know, I'd, I'd done a lot of travelling by that point, stayed in a lot of hotels, and it was nice to meet Grushkov. I met with a group of his friends at a, a publishing, a book publisher, I think it could have even been Ziff Davis, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it was one of those two-name conjunction publishers, and he had maybe half a dozen people there, he had a couple of people that brought Palestinian and Israeli kids together in virtual environments, all this kind of stuff. And I demonstrated my planar map technology, which Doug wrote the article on, and flew over a world map, which was my favourite demonstration, because you could see all the details and the high points. And that demonstration really impacted on Doug, because it was obvious that I'd developed it in isolation and quite removed from the existing technology at the time. I then went and had a meal with Doug and chatted with him, but I think the next night I was in New York, and then I flew out to Europe. I went via the UK, I think I ended up in Bonn, the people I was supposed to be meeting in Bonn at the Fraunhofer Institute had funders coming through, and... I, for some, for whatever reason, I ended up calling the person I was staying in Berlin, and he said to me, Tom, there's this article that's come out on your work, and no one really understands what it's truly about, and, you know, you probably should check your email. And fortunately, I knew one of the people I worked with had a friend in Bonn who had an email connection, in fact, just outside of Bonn, Cologne, or Cologne, depending on which side you approach it from. So I was able to check email, and my email was completely flooded. I had about 4,000 emails relating to the Rushkov article that were actual emails, as opposed to additional subscriptions to the Noblet mail art as it was then. And just a lot of traffic had gone through the, the Noblet site, or Nirvana as it was called then. And it was quite overwhelming. I didn't have the time or really the energy at that point to do any kind of processing. But when I arrived in Berlin, I can't remember who I was meeting in Berlin. I'm sure I had an academic that I was supposed to be meeting in Berlin, but I ended up spending most of my time with my friend who I was staying with, a fellow by the name of Nick Gaffney from the Insect Collective, who is now, I think, doing stuff in Belgium called Foam. And he fortunately had a kind of timeshare time allotment in a graphic design studio. So I was able to check my email solidly in Germany and actually assess what had occurred. 
And what had happened is Doug Rushkoff had published an article which was loosely based on my work, which he hadn't fact-checked, but he'd just written a lot of stuff. The Rushkoff article is still available on the Noble Ape website, noblape.com slash int slash rush.html. That's int for interview slash r-u-s-h for rushkoff.html. And the article had been published and syndicated in about 20 publications worldwide. These were mainly print publications and then probably half a dozen electronic publications. And it had been picked up on Slashdot. In fact, it had been picked up on Slashdot sufficiently that in their segment Ask John Carmack, which was on in similar time frame to the Rush Cub article, people had actually emailed in questions with regards to my work for John Carmack. It was a frenzy, and it was a frenzy that was based on misinformation. Before I'd started travelling, I scaled down the Noble Ape website to... Obviously, when you're travelling, you've got to appreciate prior to popular open source in the early part of this decade... If you put any source code online, you would get emails from a wide variety of people saying, how do you do this? Or, you know, how do you create a while loop? Or all kinds of, the full spectrum of programming-related questions. So I had intentionally pulled the source code off the site, but at the same time it was relatively easy to Yahoo search, because Google, maybe even Google search, Google hadn't quite come to the forefront of, you know, technical searching. But it was very easy to search out a wide variety of my source code and related work associated with Noble Ape. Not much of a problem there. But everyone who posted on Slashdot, and it's funny, I didn't. I got one negative email from a fellow at Bullfrog Studios, which I think EA ended up buying. But every other email out of the 4,000 plus was all really positive. And in stark contrast, all the posts on Slashdot, which amounted to probably a couple of hundred were all very skewed and very strange, and I read them and thinking, these are people who don't know anything about Noble Ape, don't know anything about me, haven't done any research in this, have taken the Rushkov article on face value, none of them contacted me asking me any more information. They were just a bunch of, I guess, tin pot technical nuts who had just basically read this article and assumed it was all hype and assumed that I'd been doing nothing and didn't know anything about me living in the shed, and that was it. I mean, the shed was actually on the website then, as it is to this day, noblelapecom slash shed. You'll see the living accommodations that I was in when I lived in Australia. And the whole thing seemed really surreal to me. And what then proceeded to occur was, when the Rushko article first came out, it was like, wow, you know, this is quite a lot of attention. And I did a couple of follow-up interviews, but I was still travelling. I had no way to contact people through email. I was, through the latter part of my trip, able to meet people in the places I stayed, which was kind of cool. I'd go out for lunch with people that had read the Rushkov article, a cryptographic expert, I think, in... I think it was Zurich, and I also met a fellow in Vienna. I had a beautiful suite in Vienna that I stayed in over my birthday, 22nd, 23rd, actually. I've got a digital video recording of me singing happy birthday to myself. Anyway! So that was the kind of tail end of the Rushkov article, and then I got back to Australia. And when I returned to Australia, I'd been travelling for three and a half months solidly. I was physically exhausted and violently physically ill. I felt that they put additional nitrogen into the planes, certainly the economy class parts of the planes. And having flown pretty solidly for three and a half months, the longest period of time I was on the ground was about two weeks, maybe three weeks at most. I felt that I was thoroughly nitrogenated from all this flying, and I was pretty badly sick for a couple of weeks. Plus, I also had to do a whole lot of nonsense associated with trying to move this behemoth thing that had been created in Australia forward in some direction. 
And what I found as well, which really concerned me, was the kind of grease factor that occurred after the Rushkov article. The people who had been my friends for a relatively short period of time, and co-workers in particular, thought that this was the point where they were going to cash in. And that really concerned me, because I saw the Rushkov article as being the start. It was in no way the finish or the middle. This basically said, OK, Tom, you've got to up your game now. This article's come out that's a bit spurious and a bit airy-fairy, but ultimately, you know, Doug's a really nice guy. I maintain a friendship with him to this day. It's not his issue that the article came out the way it did. But it raised the bar, as far as I was concerned, in terms of moving Noble 8 forward in a direction that was actually going to be productive. And from that point, basically, a, a large kind of charlatan majority tried to encave me, basically, in a lot of nonsense, which took about a year, maybe a year and a half, to finally get myself out of. In some regard, I feel the whole Wozniak meeting and hanging out with his people and spending a lot of time with Steve was part of that kind of enclave, but I really needed to get to the UK and get back to really primitive development before I had removed myself from the Rushkov article. And I always reflect that the Rushkov article is really a negative sum, it's not even a zero sum. More negative in some regard came out of the Rushkov article than positive. The positive that did come out was it got me out of Australia. It got me in an environment where I could move from Australia and ended up in the UK. It got me communicating with a lot of interesting people. But ultimately, it was one of these things where the damage done by the Rushkov article, in terms of the communicative damage, and the people who subscribed to the mail-out based on the Rushkov article didn't stick around in the development. So it was one of these curious kind of catch-22 things, where when I reflect on the Noble Ape development as a whole, I think about the IEEE article which came out in 2004, and also WWDC 2003, where the two Apple engineers, Nathan Slingerland and Sanjay Patel, demonstrated the Noble Ape simulation. These are the two highlights with regards to the Noble Ape development so far. And to a greater extent, too, in terms of the actual personal input of people like uh, Petro and Riddle P, and the kind of positive energy that I get with regards to developing the simulation. I mean, these aren't, these aren't pinnacle high points, but they're certainly warm, fuzzy means that kind of keep the development process legitimate and going. So that's the Rushkov article. And I think it's something I wanted to get out because it's part of the Noble Ape development history. I mean, the second part that came from the Rushkov article was my talk at NYU, which actually motivated the development of the simulation to the way it is currently. It went, the NYU talk, well, actually the trip to get to NYU on the train and all the development I did leading up to that, the first demonstration at NYU for probably two and a half, maybe three years of the simulation, probably more like two and a half. And then the Stockholm rewrite, which then moved the simulation into the contemporary simulation, which only now is being chiseled away with the ideas of four processors all screaming for more and more Noble Ape related information. So that's the story of the Rushkov article. I wanted to leave you all, because you've clearly tuned into this podcast for deep personal insight as opposed to technical information, with a little story that happened to me over the weekend. My sister-in-law gets show tickets occasionally, and one of the shows that she'd gotten tickets for was a fellow by... Well, he's, he's, he goes by the show title, The Mentalist at the Stardust, a fellow by the name of Jerry McCambridge, which is a very interesting conjunction for all the British-Scottish listeners to the podcast, and I know there are a couple. Anyway, Mr McCambridge has a uh, mind-reading show, 
and somehow your fearless podcaster was thrown into the mind-reading show. Now, I listen to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. I do think there are problems around the edges with the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. I think their interpretation of continental philosophy is at a kind of first-tier level, and they obviously decided not to read any deeper. But in general, I do appreciate the elements of scepticism that lend themselves to going to mind-reading shows. Mr. McCambridge's show was really poor, and it was poor on a number of levels. I wouldn't claim to be a particularly good magic reader, but point in fact, the section of the show that involved me was that you wrote your full name and nickname on a piece of paper, and then you wrote three questions which this fellow was going to answer and an additional piece of information. The three questions I wrote related to a book project I'm working on currently, which I'll probably podcast about in the future, the length of time that our dog Charlie is going to remain alive, and whether or not the collective family, including Michelle's family, would ever be in one location ever again. I thought these were relatively neutral elements. He called on a couple of people prior, and then he called out, you know, is there a Thomas in the audience? And two people stood up, of which I was one. Uh, Thomas S. And I said, oh, it's me. Passed me the mic. Uh, and he said, I sense, you know, a certain degree of scepticism in your voice. Where are you from? And I said, well, you tell me. Yeah, he's the mind reader. And he just uh, continues on. He said, you want to know how long Charlie wants to live, don't you? And I'd written this on a piece of paper. It's a sleight of hand to get the piece of paper from the stage to someone backstage. He had ta tape and stuff over his eyes, so obviously he couldn't read it. But he did have an earpiece in. He had an earpiece in for the whole part of his show, which I found very strange, since if you've got an earpiece in, you can certainly receive information. He had a microphone earpiece kit. Anyway, he then proceeded to go on and say, well, you had a nickname, it's a kind of fruit, you know, tomato head, which is what I put on the piece of paper again, in some regard trying to get involvement prior to actually getting involved. And he asked me, I said, yes, he said tomato head, I said tomato head, so he did a little bit, you say tomato, I said tomato, very funny. And he says, where are you from? And I said, well, again, I ask you, you know, where am I from? And he said, well, I'm only interested in important stuff. And I said, well, you asked me twice, so clearly you think it's important. And at that point, they took the microphone away from me. What concerns me a little bit about it is he put up 25,000, and it was very easy to pick out who the shills were because I'd flustered him, and after my flustering, he went to the shills for the remainder of the show. There were only two active shills. There were two passive shills, which he used occasionally, but the two active shills were brought up on stage for various things. So he was very, very flustered by this, and at the end of the performance, the security guards came out. And that was the point where I thought, right, uh, I'm just going to leave this situation. I've seen Casino and other related films associated with Las Vegas, but it was only strange, if you're a sceptic, who have got to stand up kind of situations. I do reflect that, you know, I didn't want to ruin the show for people, and I think if he'd... He, he hurled some abuse at me about the book and various other nonsense after as they were taking the mic away from me, which I thought was, you know, very good showmanship. But anyway, that is just a little segment from my contemporary life for all those that enjoy these podcasts. If you want to send photographs of food containing carbohydrates with regards to the diet, tom at noble8.com. Thank you very much for tuning into this podcast and look forward to you tuning into the next podcast. Happy birthday, Tom. Happy birthday. <laughs>